Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Political Science. Today I'm speaking with Michael A. Genovese about his recently published book, The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define the Institution, published by Columbia University Press. Michael is professor of political science and president of the Global Policy Institute at Loyola Marymount University. The Modern Presidency is a concisely written book that helps make sense of the most powerful office in America. Michael frames each chapter through a key conundrum about the nature of the presidency. He presents the strongest cases for the sides of every major debate, along with his own view. Along with providing insight about the modern American presidency, Michael demonstrates how to think about tough issues with remarkable clarity. Michael, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Caleb, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for highlighting the book. I'm I'm very pleased that that you would would have me on and uh, always excited to talk about the presidency. Of course, you know the the, uh, the presidency. Of course, is in the news. I feel like the presidency is is always in the news. So, you know, this is I, I think a wonderful opportunity to to get into the weeds a little bit instead of just talking about the the day to day. And you know, before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and why you chose to write this book. Uh, I've been studying the presidency for over fifty years, seriously for forty five years. Uh, and I've, I've just had such a difficult time making sense of the institution and the people who occupy it. Um, it's an unusual office. Uh, its foundations are somewhat vague. If you look at the Constitution, it's, it's not always very clear. There are a lot of silences and even some apparent contradictions. For example, Article 2 starts, all executive power belongs to the president. And then in Article 1, before that, they give Congress some executive powers. And so there was always confusion, and there's still confusion about the office. And over time, it's become so central, we've become a presidential nation. And it wasn't supposed to be that way. And that creates all kinds of stresses and strains on the Constitution, a Constitution written in the 18th century that now applies to a 21st century superpower. And so there are all kinds of, of dilemmas and paradoxes that I try to deal with and sort through. And, and, and this book in particular, um, I, I had it in my head for, gosh, 10 years to, to write something like this, to look at the key debates. Because every time I go to conferences and sit down with my buddies and political scientists who talk about and teach about the presidency, we always end up having these kinds of arguments about what's more important, what works best. How does it work? Um, and I wanted to sort of directly confront those key questions. And, and that was the, the genesis of the book. So I'm going to start with a, with a pretty basic question, but I think it's important just because about half of our listeners uh, are not based in the United States. Uh, and the presidency, even though it's a, a role in, in certain countries, doesn't necessarily hold the same powers as it does in the United States. So just according to the, the Constitution, uh, what is the role of the president in the United States? Well, the president is the chief executive officer of the nation. 
not the chief legislator, um, but presidents have over time moved into the legislative arena very aggressively. But the, the president was supposed to be not the errand boy of Congress, but was supposed to execute the will of Congress, execute the laws, be the chief administrative officer, manage the executive branch and manage the federal government. Um, that was a very limited role. I mean, the presidency on paper, if you look constitutionally, the, the power cupboard is not bare, but it's certainly not robust. Most of the juicy powers belong to Congress. And though, so if someone came in from, you know, as I say, from another planet and looked at our constitution, they would not believe that the president is the central figure. But over time, that's the way it's evolved or devolved. And so, you know, we, we've got a constitution that tells you one thing, public demands and expectations that tell you another, and, and the history of the office, which has added over time more and more authority and higher expectations to the presidency. One of the key dilemmas then is that our demands and expectations on the presidency are very high, but the constitutional power that we give them to achieve our demands is very limited. And that creates almost inevitably disappointment amongst the public. What constitutes a successful presidency? Can you give like an example of maybe a successful president along with an unsuccessful one? Well, you know, if you look historically, those presidents that are considered the greats have a few things in common. One is they always expanded the role of the people and their power and their influence. That is to say, they fought for democracy. You start with George Washington, who in, in many ways is as responsible as the framers of the Constitution for creating a Republican presidency, small r Republican. You go to Lincoln, the, uh, the next great president, and his fight for, was for unity, for union, and to reconstitute what America was built around the Declaration of Independence and those magnificent sentiments that are grounded in the early part of the Declaration. Uh, and, and the third great president and, and any rating system that doesn't have these three at the top is, is not very legitimate. Uh, the third great president was Franklin Roosevelt, who got us through the Depression, World War II, and expanded the rights of citizens. And so the one common denominator of greatness is they faced severe challenges, and worked for the good of the people, worked for expanding the rights of the people and expanding democracy. Those presidents who are more concerned with themselves tended not to do as well. They tended to, to look up, up, up at the world through their own eyes, not through the, the eyes of the nation. And so uh, those presidents who gave of themselves to the people tended to be the ones that we most admire. And those presidents who, who reveal themselves in, in a very sort of narcissistic way or a selfish way tend to be the most criticized. I mean, you could look at Trump or Nixon in, in that regard. The first question that you ask uh, and that you look at in your book is the question of what is more important, power or persuasion? Can you talk about that? What, what, what do you mean by power and what do you mean by persuasion? Right. That, that's a kind of, um, and I know you have an international audience, but Americans refer, would refer to that as an inside baseball question. By that, I mean, it's it, the trivia and the minutia of baseball that you really have to know what you're talking about to get into that argument. And it's based on what scholars have 
starting in the 1960s, understood the presidency to be. And that understanding was shaped by one man and one book, Richard Neustadt, and the book was Presidential Power. In that book, and it was the most influential book on the presidency for 30 years, it's still used in college classrooms, um, updated versions. Um, the, the, the argument that Neustadt made was that the president has very limited constitutional authority. And so where does his power come from? It comes from prestige. It comes from persuasion. The prestige that he can bring to the office and the persuasion, the tools of persuasion that he can use. Because presidents can't command members of Congress. They can't command Supreme Court justices. What they can do is leverage what resources they have and persuade people to follow. There's a great quote from Harry Truman who said right before he left office and and Eisenhower took over and he said, poor Ike, he's going to go into office and he's going to tell this person to do this and that person to do that. And they're not going to do it. Poor Ike is used to commanding. Presidents don't have a lot of authority to command. And, And Neustadt's book really focused on how presidents could use the persuasive skills that they may have had uh, experience, persuasive skills, communication skills to leverage power. And that those presidents who aggressively were able to do that could succeed. That, that basically created a, a kind of a, a tunnel vision for presidential scholars. And they, they looked almost exclusively at persuasion for several decades. The problem is persuasion is only part of the package. The other part is that the president does have some constitutional and statutory authority. And so probably in the 2000s, we began to really see younger scholars, especially challenging the orthodoxy and saying, you know, maybe presidents do have more power. And one of the ways that they brought that to our attention is by looking at the unilateral powers and unilateral authority a president has in the form of executive authority executive agreements, proclamations, signing statements, uh, regulatory practices. And the the younger generation of scholars starting in the 2000s started to really focus on power and the the power that a president could have. Uh, And so that really was, was not a debate until 15, 20 years ago. And now it is the debate, you know, what really makes a president successful? Is it the ability to move people? Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. Or is it the ability to literally command? Uh, And the answer, my my view is the answer is that it's it's not either or. That effective presidents know how to to use both skills and know when to use those skills. Um, For example, if you take Joe Biden, the last two years he focused on landmark legislation, which required persuasion. But he had a majority, slim as it was, in or is, in both the House and the Senate. And so he was able to then use his persuasive skills to get Congress to go along with what he wanted in many regards. That was a good use of, of his persuasive skill, but it was also built on a foundation of having Congress in his partisan hands. His next two years he will not have that luxury of having a Congress that is controlled by Democrats. Could be that uh, both the House and the Senate, certainly the House is going Republican. And therefore, 
his ability to persuade is going to be greatly diminished. Congress doesn't want to hear it. Republicans in control of the House don't want to buy what Joe Biden is selling. And so he could be as persuasive as FDR. They don't want to buy it. And so the question is, then, does the president then to sort of pack up his tent and say, well, I guess I can't get anything done? Of course not. And so Biden will move from the persuasive side of the presidency to the more command oriented side um, of power. He will use his executive authority. He will do proclamations. You'll see more executive agreements, more executive uh, uh, orders. You'll see him use the regulatory power much more. For example, on the environment, the House is not going to pass a pro-environmental bill. But Biden will, I'll bet um, um, my house on it almost, um, he will be starting to issue more regulations. Now, those regulations will not have monumental impact because you can only do so much through regulatory power. But he'll be able to make some small steps in the right direction. And so that's what we'll see. And so is it power or persuasion? It's both and depends on the circumstances. The next question that you ask is, what is uh, what matters more, the individual or the institution? I, I think people have a, might have a sense just off the bat of what, what you mean by the individual. But what exactly do you mean by the institution? Well, it's the question of what matters more. Does the institution shape the person or does the person shape the institution? Um, and there's a variable answer to that. Uh, when Donald Trump came into power, a lot of people were worried about him his personality, his style. Um, and some of his defenders said, don't worry, the institution will mold him. The institution will bind him. The institution is so important that he won't be able to buck the institutional uh, powers that, that exist. Well, Donald Trump didn't believe that and he didn't operate that way. Donald Trump said, no, I'm gonna bend the institution to my needs, to my desires. And he did that with some success. Now, all presidents have an institutional side. All presidencies are partly institutional because the president is surrounded by a variety of people, several hundred and is in close proximity, several thousand in his orbit. And those people have an influence. How do you get information to the president? How does the president process information? How does the president manage a large bureaucracy? How does he manage all those programs? How does the president operate within a managerial um, milieu? Um, and different presidents do it in different ways. Some presidents are very hierarchical, Richard Nixon. Some presidents are very collegial. Uh, some president, like the Carter was more collegial. Um, and some presidents simply are divorced from, from the, the, the managerial hierarchy. Do Donald Trump would just do what he wanted and expect people to just follow. Um, and so there's strong managerial imperatives on the presidency. There are things he has to do, reports he has to make. But the president also has flexibility. The individual can put his stamp on that. And so the president's individual choices also matter. That is to say, Joe Biden focuses on the environment. Donald Trump did not. And so the individual matters greatly. They bring their experience. They bring their operating style. They bring their prejudices. They bring their preferences. They bring their ideology to the office. How much of that can they stamp onto the, off the executive branch? 
that's a hard thing to do because the, the bureaucracy is going to be there when the president leaves. They don't necessarily operate on the same narrow time band that he's on. And you saw in the Trump presidency, Donald Trump would give orders and people would literally not obey them. Uh, if you read all of uh, it's fascinating to read the, uh, the memoirs of especially the military folks who were at top echelon posts in the Trump administration. And they would say the president ordered this and I just wouldn't do it. Or when the president wanted to remove uh, uh, nuclear uh, American troops from North Korea, uh, one of the cabinet officials, um, whose name I'm now forgetting, literally took that piece of paper off the president's desk and removed it. And so there's always a tension between the individual and the office. Does the man shape the institution or the institution the man? Donald Trump was a very strong person. He tried to stamp his personality onto the institution, and he did a pretty good job, but the institution often fought back. And so it's not always clear, basically, who's running the, the, the show, um, because the, the executive branch is so big, so massive, that a president can't have his tentacles out everywhere. And so you rely on other people to do the job. You, you, you hope that you can give clear instructions to people who you appoint that are capable, and that always that is not always the case. Uh, presidents can be undermined by bad choices of cabinet officials. Uh, you look at uh, George W. Bush and his choice of the uh, of Brown as his uh, uh, Homeland Security uh, FEMA head, uh, and when Katrina struck, it just brought about disaster. And so presidents are vulnerable. And the question is, well, why are presidents such bad managers? And there are two answers for that. One, very few have managed very much in their past. Senators manage a small staff. Uh, governors tend to be more managerial. Uh, so they don't have a lot of experience at managing large organizations. The second thing, second factor in terms of why don't they don't manage very well is they don't have the time and they aren't willing to give the resources over to it. And that's why the office of chief of staff becomes so important. Uh, the most valuable thing, more valuable than gold in Washington, is to have a good chief of staff. If you've got a good chief of staff who really has, has a pulse on politics and Congress and on the bureaucracy, who has skill, who fights for a president, boy, that's, that's half the battle right there. Um, and I guess not to be too long-winded about this, but, but the, the Reagan presidency is a good example of how that worked and didn't work. When Ronald Reagan first became president, he had, um, and again, Ronald Reagan was an absentee manager. He just delegated things. Um, and, and so what he did was he basically allowed three people, the Troika, they called it, Mike Deaver, James Baker, and Ed Meese. Uh, to basically meet every day and run the office of presidency. Those three people were capable. Uh, James Baker was one of the most capable people the United States has seen in the post-World War II period. Um, and James Baker was the titular chief of staff. Meese was the policy guy. Deaver was the media guy. And they'd sit there every morning and go, what's the story of the day? And they said, you know, we're going to act like we're the producers of the evening news. What do we want the evening news to start with? And we're going to make that happen. And they ran the presidency and they ran the Reagan presidency with skill. Well, Donald Reagan, the Treasury Secretary, wanted 
to be chief of staff. And James Baker wanted to be president. And so they, in talking, Baker realized that he needed his own political base. And so if he were treasury secretary, he'd expand his base. So they just went to Reagan and said, we'd like to switch jobs. And Reagan didn't ask one question and said yes. Though one of the worst decisions Reagan made because Donald Reagan was a terrible chief of staff, was all about himself, um, and things just collapsed. Uh, whereas the Troika was very effective. So the individual, the institution, the answer is yes, they're both incredibly important. So would you say that, you know, when people talk about the institution of the presidency, if there was a a person to maybe associate it with, it wouldn't necessarily be the president, but it would be the chief of staff, or does it depend on the presidency? Yeah, it depends. Um, All presidents are by the constitutional design, the chief executives, but, but they, they all delegate considerable authority to a chief of staff. And so more than, than, than who your, your cabinet officials will be, uh, the chief of staff is the single most important a president makes in the transition period. Yeah, I remember, I think Trump's first chief of staff was Reince Priebus, who was the, the institutional, you know, kind of the RNC institutional figure. And that didn't last very long. Um, well, you know, Reagan didn't do well with any of his chiefs of staff because he wanted to be his own chief of staff. Jimmy Carter tried to do that too, realized pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work. Trump never figured it out, never realized it. And therefore, um, the, the, the Trump White House was terribly managed. Moving to, you know, maybe a more more theoretical question, you know, according to the framers of the Constitution, and you don't need to just talk about the how the Constitution thinks about it. Uh, you can also talk about the, the scholarly debates, but is the presidency more of a, of a powerful unitary executive or a limited constitutional office? Right. That's a question that's come up really in, in, since the 1980s, uh, because we always felt prior to the 1980s that the presidency was a constitutionally limited office, that the Constitution both, both empowers and limits the occupant of the White House, and that presidents had fairly, I think, limited room to roam. That became an issue in the 1980s. became an issue because starting with Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s and 40s, Roosevelt was the liberal, activist, powerful presidency. And what developed out of FDR was what's called the, the FDR halo, that the presidency was good and benign and could do great things, kind of a Superman who could leap tall buildings and tall separations of power in a single leap. Um, And that became the liberal orthodoxy. Conservatives were opposed to that view. They wanted more limited, more constitutional government, but they were kind of sort of shouting into the wind, tilting at windmills because the FDR presidency and Truman and even Eisenhower didn't try to, to undo the, the New Deal presidency. Then Kennedy, then Lyndon Johnson with the Great Society programs. And we began to think that, well, hallowed be the presidency. This is the, the, the great American invention, the great office that can, can do so much and is the, the, the source of all progress. We want more power to the presidency. That was a powerful argument in 1964 and 65. That argument became undone because of two things, Vietnam and civil rights. 
Vietnam showed us that giving all this power to the president could have its downside. And civil rights reorganized the politics of the nation. Um, and we, we had the, the real partisan split between Democrats and Republicans, where Democrats were seen as the party of civil rights, Republicans against civil rights. Prior to the 60s, the Republicans were more progressive on civil rights than Democrats. But the 60s really changed that. And Richard Nixon exploited that in the 60s and 70s with what was called the Southern strategy, which was, we're going to peel off Democrats from the South and pull them into our party. And it was incredibly successful. And it was based entirely on race. Um, then Republicans started to say, well, yeah, okay, now this big presidency, I wonder if we might be able to use it now for our ends. That became a source of great debate in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. We've got our guy there, said Republicans. Why don't we use the office to achieve our agenda, our goals? And so at that point, the debate over small versus big presidency pretty much ended. And the Republican Party joined the Democratic Party in calling for a big presidency. That big presidency was to be used for different purposes, but both sides wanted a big, powerful presidency. And how do you justify that intellectually? For the Republicans, what they did was they had to form a theory of governing based on something that they had opposed for two generations at least, which was, you know, we believe in limited government. We believe in small government. Now they're advocating big government and big centralized power. How do you justify it? They, they came up with this thing called the unitary theory of the executive. In a literal sense, the president is a unitary officer or the presidency is a unitary office. And Article 2 of the Constitution established that. We will have one president. So in that sense, literally it's unitary. But, but they took it much further than that. They said that, no, the Constitution also gives the presidency enormous powers. That was the tough sell, because you really can't find a lot of evidence to support that. They go back to Alexander Hamilton, who was one of those advocates of a stronger presidency. And in the Federalist Papers, he called for what he said was energy in the executive. But if you read the, the, the Federalist Papers, if you read Hamilton, and if, you're, if you want to be sincere about it, you realize that what Hamilton is saying is, I want a stronger presidency. Remember, the original um, uh, government of America had literally no executive officer. Prior to the Constitution, we did not have a president or a prime minister or a chief executive officer. Everything was run by the Congress or the, the Continental Congress then. And so the question then became, you know, what kind of a presidency are we creating? And Hamilton in the Federalist Papers does call for energy in the executive. There's no doubt about it. And he believed in a stronger presidency. But he always said it's one within, con within Republican confines, that it was a Republican presidency. And so Alexander Hamilton would never support the unitary views that started in the 1980s. But that was really a fig leaf that they used to try to, to say, you know, we believe now that we can use the presidency for conservative ends. And so the, the debate then became, well, is the presidency what Donald Trump said it was or what George W. Bush said it was? George W. Bush, during the war in Iraq, said, or there was a memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, Counsel which said, 
that in wartime, the president's acts are, and this is their word, not mine, non-reviewable, meaning, and they explained, Congress and the courts cannot review presidential actions in wartime. That is completely wrong constitutionally. It's just, it is such a violation of constitutional uh, principles. Um, and, and, and it was rejected. It was rejected when Nixon did it. His famous line, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. It was rejected when Bush said it and the Bush administration tried to promote it. But it, it had legs. It lasted because conservatives really wanted the, the strong presidency model to be used for conservative ends. They saw, they basically drank the Kool-Aid the way the Democrats did in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and so today that debate is uh, still a powerful one. Donald Trump is a firm believer, although I don't know that he, he's, he knows the, the confines of the debate, so the unitary executive. He believes that the president has power. He always he said many times, I have an article too, and that lets me do anything. Well, then if that was true, then why do you even have a constitution? Uh, it's not true. Um, and so uh, uh, in most of these debates that, that, that are in the book, I, I come down somewhere in the middle. On that one, I don't come down in the middle. We, we, do not, we, we do not have the kind of excessively powerful unitary president who is divorced from Congress and the courts. Uh, the beauty of our system, and also the flaw of it in many people's view, is that we have a limited government. We share power. We separate power. We check and balance power. It's not efficient. Uh, God knows it's not efficient, and that's what a lot of people don't like. But it, it does a lot to protect liberty, and it's worked for us pretty well for 230 years. I'm, I'm not sure I want to give that up now. So that's that's the unitary executive debate uh, writ large. Has there been a president that has pushed back against the unitary theory and has argued that the presidency should be constitutionally limited? Uh, it, it seems that it would be in every president's self-interest to, to advocate for more power. Well, I'm going I'm to say something that seems to undermine what I've just said, and that is there was a president who did that. Um, James Buchanan, prior to the Civil War, when, when the, the South was threatening to secede, um, and, and Buchanan said, you know, I, I think that they can, I think that's illegal. I don't think they can, can legally secede from the union, but I don't have the authority to do anything about it. And so he was kind of paralyzed. But what paralyzed Buchanan animated Lincoln, who went beyond the Constitution. So how can it be that we say that Buchanan is one of the worst presidents ever when he was one of the most conscious and deliberate presidents in trying to live by the Constitution? The answer that I give to that is that you're right in the sense that Buchanan honored the Constitution. But Buchanan also wasn't able to see the writing on the wall and say, you know, sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And as Lincoln said, you know, you, 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 sometimes you might have to, to, to break one little law to protect the big law. And as long as you did it publicly, openly, and then as Lincoln did, went to the Congress and said, okay, this is what I've done. You need to authorize it or I can't do it. That kind of legitimized it. Um, and so presidents tend to want to argue that they have more power than less because they're going to be judged based on what they accomplish. And the Constitution doesn't allow you much latitude to accomplish too much. That was by design. Um, 
presidents don't like that. I wouldn't like it if I were president. I'd find ways to wiggle my way around the laws uh, if, if I could now and then. Um, and so presidents tend to, to, to try to see for look for avenues where they can expand power. And they tend not to want to be restricted or limited by constitutional uh, limitations. But the Constitution's there. And the more we openly violate the Constitution, the more violence we do to our constitutional principles. And, you know, uh, the reason why we praise Lincoln but condemn Bush and Trump is because all of them believe they could on occasion go beyond the law. Lincoln said, and this is just mimicking Machiavelli, only on the basis of necessity could I consider doing such things. And only if I laid myself bare before the Congress and said, this really is your power. I did it in the interim while you were not in session as an emergency uh, act out of necessity, but now it's in your hands to tell me yes or no. Bush and Trump, George W. Bush and Donald Trump wouldn't do that. They basically said, no, it's ours. We own it. And the answer is that's just wrong constitutionally. It's wrong politically. And one of the reasons why we condemn George W. Bush and Donald Trump is because they were constitutional scofflaws. And just for clarity, uh, what Lincoln did was he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, correct? Uh, did that. He, he brought, uh, he called uh, people up to serve in the military, which he had no authority to do. Uh, there are a variety of things that constitutionally were not just dubious, they were just plain wrong. He recognized that, owned up to it when Congress was back in session. And so, um, you know, if Lincoln had done those things in normal times, he would have been impeached, but he did those in an emergency and Congress gave retrospective approval. And so we look back on that and said, you know, his motives were clean. His process, you know, questionable boy. He did he did some things that were pretty cheesy. But um, but he did in the end, and when he first got a chance to in his July 4th speech to Congress, uh, laid it bare, laid it before the Congress and said, this is what I've done. Do do you approve? And that was the, that was the the, the clincher. I think that leads perfectly into the, the next question, because Lincoln is so known for his remarkable character. Uh, you know, which is more valuable, character or, or competence? You know, that's such a tough question. I mean, can't, must you be a good person to be a good president? Can a person who has questionable morals be an effective president? One of the, one of the problems that I have, one of the dilemmas I constantly face is that so many of the qualities or attributes that I criticize help you to gain power and use it. Now, I'm, I'm also a student of Machiavelli. I've actually uh, did a translation of The Prince um, back in my youthful, my, day, my, my early days. And, you know, Machiavelli was probably the, the leading sort of voice in trying to show you that it was it was the accumulation and effective use of power that was important, and that questions of character, questions of morality, shouldn't really be central to what a, a leader or a prince does. And that while Machiavelli did say, look, the only person we should praise is one who does the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. Reality is such that 
it's an ugly world out there and there are people who want to do you harm and sometimes you have to behave badly. And his, his line was, and I'll paraphrase it, if you maintain the highest moral ethical standards and your neighbor is aggressive and wants to take your land and subjugate your people and will do anything to do so, will violate any moral principle to do so, if you don't stop him, in effect, fight fire with fire, what you've done is you've undermined your leadership you've, and you've destroyed your people and your state that the bad guy will take over and do 10 times worse than you could ever do. And so Machiavelli is sensitive to that and so are all leaders. And so there's a Zen saying, water that is too pure has no fish. We're electing a president. We're not electing a pastor. And a president is responsible for much more than his own soul, if that's the way one looks at it, uh, is responsible for the safety and security of the nation, of the people. And therefore, things that I would be forbidden from doing in my private life, I shall not kill. Sometimes a president does those things. Presidents order people to be killed, to go to their death. Some of the harshest and most difficult decisions a president has to make would be morally indefensible in the individual. But it's what, what uh, political theorists called the dirty hands dilemma. Presidents sometimes have to get, or leaders, sometimes have to get their hands dirty. It's not pretty, but it's, it may be necessary. And Machiavelli and Lincoln both underlined the necessity argument. If it's, only, if it's necessary, you might, need, you might be able to, to justify doing it. It's not that the ends justify the means necessarily, but sometimes necessity allows you to take some liberties. And so while I want my presidents to be highly moral, uh, I'm not sure I expect them to be in all cases. And it's a question of which morality. Um, cheating on your wife is a horrible thing, but it doesn't necessarily make you a bad president. If it does, some of the, our great presidents would have to, we'd have to put them up for reevaluation, reexamination, both left and right. Um, I would bet that Richard Nixon never cheated on his wife, but he did cheat on the country. Whereas Bill Clinton kept cheating on his wife, allegedly. Uh, but I think he had the, the country's interests in mind. Um, and so to me, the most important factor is competence, the ability to get a job done and to do the right thing for the right reason when you can. Um, personal morality, there is no, people have done research in this and they've said there's no correlation between highly moral individuals and highly successful leaders. Not that we're saying you know, bad people should, should seek the office, many do, um, but that some of our greatest presidents did some things that we would not want to put on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and that's true of the, the great ones as well as the good ones. Um, too much purity, as I said, the Zen Cohen, uh, water that's too pure has no fish. Um, it's, it can be a messy world, an ugly world. There are people who want to do you harm. And if you take the responsibility of shepherding your nation, then as the shepherd, you need to, to maybe just go after a couple of wolves now and then, 
or at least protect the flock against wolves. That's a patronizing view, I know, but that's also the view of, pres- of, of presidential scholars, that the president has a responsibility. And that responsibility uh, means that you're going to have to face China, Russia, North Korea. You're going to have to deal with all kinds of people and issues that you know you, you may not like and you may not want to deal with them, but you, know, that you just have to take the world the, the way it is. And so... You know, we, we want our presidents to be good people, and I prefer that. But I also know that they have to do some things that aren't the purest in the world. And so which is more important? You know, I want people to be as good as they can be, but also willing to, to fight for the rights and interests of the people here. I'm curious to, to hear also some of your thoughts on, on what exactly you mean by competence. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking about maybe a, a comparison between uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, that pound for pound, we might think that Obama is more intelligent than Joe Biden, but Joe Biden has vastly more experience. And I would say, you know, in his two years has probably accomplished more than Obama was able to accomplish in his first two years. Uh, I, I don't you might disagree with that. But, uh, you know, what exactly do you do you mean by competence? Yeah, I don't I don't substantially disagree with what you've said. I think, you know, Joe Biden um, achieved a lot. Uh, you may not like what he achieved, but he achieved a lot. Um, and Barack Obama, he did get a few things, including you know healthcare reform legislation. Um, but Bi- Biden had more experience, certainly much more than Obama. And experience matters. Uh, competence matters. Ability matters. Knowing what to do, when to do it. Being able to call members of Congress and p- that you've known for 20 years, as Biden uh, does. To be able to call world leaders that you've been with for 30 years or 20 years and know them. All of that can matter. Um, you know, Donald Trump was a day trader um, and didn't really know the leaders of the world. Joe Biden knows everybody. They know him and they like, most of them like him. They may not agree with him all the time. They like him. Um, and that matters. That matters because those personal relations can be very important. Uh, a lot of them grew to like Barack Obama and many of them liked him because he was not George W. Bush. Um, but experience and competence really matter. The ability to, to know what to do, how to do it, when to do it, just political timing. You think of the, you know, a, a great orchestral work. Uh, of classical music, a, a great writer of music, great composer, knows when to bring the volume up and when to bring it down, knows when to have silences. A skilled leader has the same kind of adept skill at being able to know uh, the old country western song, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Um, and that comes with, with intelligence and experience. And I think you are right. Uh, Obama may be more intelligent than Biden, but Biden's more experienced. And so competence matters. It matters a great deal. And, you know, along with, with competence, uh, there's also skill uh, and, and opportunity. So, you know, between these two, what do you see as more important, skill or, or opportunity? Right. That's another big debate within political science and presidency scholarship. Um, all presidents are not created equal. Some come in with certain advantages, others with disadvantages. Um, and so one of the things that we as scholars focus on is, is what I refer to as the level of political opportunity, which is measured by 
a variety of factors. For example, what was the nature of the presidential election? Did you win big or narrowly? Did you run an an issue-oriented campaign or a personality-oriented campaign? Did you bring a number of members of your party into Congress, enough so that they controlled both houses, and hopefully by a big margin? Um, That creates great opportunities. Um, And so a president who comes into office, as FDR did, winning in a landslide, bringing in a number of Democrats into the House and Senate, having huge majorities in the House and Senate, well, that opens the door to power. Uh, how much skill do you need if you have six, a 60 margin victory, uh, advantage, a uh, partisan advantage in the House? How much, how skilled did this FDR have to be? How skilled does, does Lyndon Johnson have to be? Lyndon Johnson could lose 50 votes in the House from his own party and still win. Biden can lose two. Obama could lose two. And so the opportunities that a Lyndon Johnson had in his first few years and an FDR had in his first few years was enormously important for their success. They were both also quite skilled. Uh, but can you imagine a Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford winning the presidency in 32 and becoming president in 33? A person of limited skill still would have gotten a lot done, not nearly as much as FDR got done, but the opportunity level was so high that he could have got, they could have gotten a lot done. Um, and so opportunity opens doors and the lack of opportunity closes them. Um, and, and you can see that in, in the Obama presidency, the Trump presidency, and the Biden presidency. When Barack Obama was first elected, he had majorities in both houses, houses and got huge piece of legislation, the uh, Obamacare, passed. Midterm elections, his, part, his party got shellacked, as he said, and he, had, he was able to do very little in Congress. Donald Trump, when he had majorities in both houses, could get what he wanted out of Congress, at least to a degree. And then in the midterms when the Democrats won, nothing. Joe Biden got a lot out of the first two years because he had majorities, slim majorities in both the House and the Senate. Now he will get very little done. So the opportunities presented to Biden, Trump, and Obama helps us understand how and why they were successful. Um, and so opportunity is important, but skill skill matters, but it doesn't matter as much as we think. Um, I know that sounds odd uh, because skill is always important, and it is important. Um, and yes, FDR and LBJ had tremendous amount of skill in the legislative arena, but even Ford and Carter, who, who had less, Carter, for example, had less experience, uh, less skill in dealing with the legislature. If the opportunity is there, you can still do something. And so skill or opportunity, you, you, every president needs a high level of skill. The, the, the more, the better. But if you don't have the opportunity, if the door is closed, and if the door is closed and locked, you can't do very much. And so presidents can be quite vulnerable to opportunity levels, um, high and low. Um, you know, Frank, uh, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be a wartime president. And there was a time, he, he said two things that are, are apropos. One, he said at one point, he says, oh gosh, if I could just be president and Congress together just for five minutes. And at another point, he said, uh, 
you know, I had the misfortune of being president in calm times. I needed a crisis to be great. Now, Teddy Roosevelt had an incredible amount of drive and skill, and so he got as much out of his opportunities as was humanly possible. But the opportunities still limited him, and he recognized that. And when Bill Clinton became president, he seemed, at least at first, he was focused on, on Teddy Roosevelt and said, how did Roosevelt get as much as he did out of so little? How did he squeeze you know, water out of a stone? And can I do that? The answer is it's hard to do that. You almost never can. Teddy Roosevelt may have been the exception. What do you see as the the future of the American presidency? Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, so you don't have to make any predictions. But do you think that the nature of the presidency is changing? It is changing dramatically, uh, in part because of globalization uh, and in part because of, of the sort of tribalism of America. There is a, a challenge today, and it, it, it exists globally, in which democracies are on the defensive. Why are they on the defensive? Because there is a perception that democracies have not fulfilled the promise of governing effectively for the people. That's true in the U.S., it's true in Europe, um, Many critics of democracy are saying democracies are captured by elites. The resources, the goodies go to the elites. Our interests are not being met. And there's actually some truth to that. Uh, If you look in the United States, yes, the elites get more. They have great advantages. Um, They can milk the system better than anybody. And so what that has led to is, is a level of what I call um, democratic discomfort, where people are beginning to think that it's actually democracy that's at fault. And they look for an alternative. And there are two things that they're turning to. One is populism. The other is authoritarianism. And sometimes those two are linked. If you look at what's going on in Europe, in Poland, in Hungary, a little bit in Italy, a little bit in France, a little bit in the UK, what you see is that right-wing populist authoritarians, there have been a lot of left-wing authoritarians. I'm not trying to make this into a partisan thing, and there still are. I mean, look at Venezuela, for example. Look at Cuba for, for years. Um, uh, and so it's not a left-wing, right-wing thing. But right at this particular moment, what we're seeing is a lot of right-wing populist authoritarians are challenging liberal democracy. Liberal democracy, by that I mean the rule of law, checks and balances, separation of powers, uh, limited government. And they're saying, give me power and I'll get things done. Donald Trump said that. Um, And and it's, it's a refrain that has a certain appeal because, gosh, wouldn't we all like a knight in shining armor to come along and save us? Wouldn't I want my dad to pay my, my, my credit card bill? Wouldn't I want someone to, you know, there's, there's a, a bit in all of us that wants to be saved and wants to be led. Um, and that's why democracy is such a tough, tough thing, because democracy asks us to be leaders. Um, but there is today a, a great threat to that liberal democratic view that the American framers tried to institute in the United States 
that Lincoln, Lincoln in 1938 at a speech said that if America falls, we will not fall from an outside aggressor. We will do it to ourselves. And that almost came to fruition a dozen, 15 years later in the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln confronted that and at the Gettysburg Address asked the question, at a time when democracy globally was teetering, and if the South won the war, would that have a domino effect? A lot of people, including Lincoln, thought so. As did Garibaldi, the great liberator of Italy. This is why he supported Lincoln. Uh, and Lincoln said at, at Gettysburg that we're here to try to test the proposition. And it was just a proposition that, that we could govern. The government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Think of those stakes that Lincoln understood, that the Civil War wasn't just about North and South. It was about a thing called democracy and whether it would survive. It did survive, and he strengthened democracy. And democracy has had great challenges. The challenge of fascism in the 1930s and 40s, we beat that. The challenge of communism, you know, the right-wing fascist challenge, then the left-wing uh, communist challenge in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. We beat that. Then we had the terrorism challenge, and now we have the challenge of, of, of authoritarianism, not just in the United States, but globally. And that's why the defense of, of democracy, and, and I'm not going to try to, to excessively praise Joe Biden, but his defense of democracy against the, the past four years with Trump is one of the most important messages he delivers. And so the question really is, what will the future of the presidency be? Do we want the easy way out and, and ask to be saved by a, a, an authoritarian, by an autocrat, by a strong leader? Do we want that strong leader to guide us and govern us? Or can we do it? Can we have a democracy full of faults? It's slow. What is, what is it that Churchill said? Democracy is the worst form of government ever invented by man, except for all the others. And he also said, Churchill said, you know, democracy is like you're, you're trying to, to maneuver your way on a raft that's a little bit leaky. You're always getting your feet wet. Well, that's the nature of, of liberal democracy. You're always getting your feet wet. And some people want to be saved. Some people want the big answer. They want to hit the, the Grand Slam home run every day. And, and dictators are efficient, but they're also dangerous. And I think that the, the, the great debate that we all face today is the debate over liberal democracy versus what they call illiberal democracy or authoritarianism. And the outcome of that debate will have global implications. Um, I side with the... I'm a bit of a constitutional conservative. I side with liberal democracy. My final question for you is, who is your favorite president of all time? You know, I am such a milk toasty guy. I'm such a mainstream. I mind Litz Lincoln. Um, and I, I fully recognize his many flaws. Um, but why do I admire Lincoln so much? I think it's because of Lincoln himself. Um, his sensibility, his deep understanding 
of human nature. When, when, when Lincoln was young, he had very few things to read, but he did have a, a, a collection of Shakespeare plays. No other human being, in my view, had a better sense of human beings, their strengths and limitations than Shakespeare. And Lincoln would read and reread Shakespeare. And I think he absorbed something from that. He had a, a, a truly deep understanding of who we were. And he was so empathetic and sensitive. Um, I'm going to say something that's maybe a little odd, but he was very much in touch with his male and female sides. That is to say, he, he could be a man of great strength and also a man of great empathy. Um, he could be a man who commanded, but also a, com a man who felt. And his, his writings, to me, are like poetry. If you read his Gettysburg Address, the first and second inaugural addresses, um, if you read those the second inaugural address about, you know, we both thought God was on our side, didn't we? Yes, we did. Um, how do we appeal to the better angels within us? Uh, people say that Whitman was our national poet. No, I think it was Lincoln. And so, um, yes, he did. He went to excess at times in the Civil War, uh, always with the right intention. And in the end, he did the right thing. And in the end, I guess you always want to go with the winners. He, he, he did what he had to do. And so, you know, I have about uh, five or six that I like, but Lincoln is is a, a very conventional choice, but it's my choice. I think that's a great choice. <laughs> I'd probably choose Lincoln too. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest in the New Books Network. It was great to talk to you. The, uh, the book is The Modern Presidency, Six Debates That Define Institution from Columbia University Press. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. <laughs>